Good morning, church family. This morning we'll be continuing to work our way together as a, as a family through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. We've seen so far how God, in his mercy and in his grace, saved his saints. Those sinners from eternity past, he predestined them. He sovereignly elected them. And, and Paul has carefully told us not only of the giver of the gift, but of the, the gift of salvation that they've been given. And this week as we move in, we're going to see Paul shift his direction and remind the saints at Ephesus that this gift wasn't because they were qualified to receive it. This was nothing that they earned, but being recipients of this gift ought to cause in them an appropriate response. I invite you to stand and join me for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The word of God says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father God, we come together this morning as your people saved by your grace through faith. We ask anew, Lord God, that you would give us a right understanding of who you are as the giver of this salvation, as the one who has made it possible through the blood of Jesus. I pray this morning, Lord God, that you would give me clarity of mind, that you would allow each person here in, in the hearing of your word have their ears open, that you would give them saving faith. Allow us to understand and rightly live out what your word instructs us for our good and for the praise of your glorious grace. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So with last week's memory verse fully in mind, but God, that those resounding Words that, that Paul breaks out and what ought to produce song in us. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. There's this, his love that's motivating this gift that he's given to us. Even when we were dead in sin and our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Verse 6 continues as, as Paul begins to explain yet again what God has done for those whom he has saved. This morning we're going to look at what God has done, a new looking at how he has accomplished that, and finally, why he has done that. What is the, the purpose in all of this that God would give us so great a gift? Verse 6 goes closely together with verse five, so we, we can't miss that. Paul explains that it's because God is rich in mercy, because of an immeasurable love, and through grace, he saved us. And then he goes on to explain even more the spiritual benefit of, of what it is that God has done on our behalf. It says, and he raised us up and seated us 
with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18 are a remarkable expression of what it is that God has done for us in raising us up with Christ. You see, the power of the, of the resurrection is the way in which that gift was prepared for us. Had it not been for Christ taking our sins to the cross and for us being raised up with him, this gift would not be effectual. The grace is manifested in that Christ suffered, died, and was raised from the dead. I'm uh, preaching out of a different Bible this week, and, and I love the fact that this particular text has the words of Christ in red. Revelation, the first chapter. Jesus speaks. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. These are the, the words that Jesus says. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Who can make that statement except the risen lamb? I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. That's what Christ said. And you know what? Then Paul goes on to say that we were raised up with him. That triumphant declaration of what God did in Christ and raising him for the dead is what assures us of the gift that we've been given. We are raised up with him. Romans 6 verse 4 says, We were buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul begins by, by telling us that we were raised with Christ. All of the resurrection power is part of guarantees us of the forgiveness of our sins and of a saving grace. And then Paul goes on to, to use an interesting expression that we're going to unpack a little bit together this morning. He says that we were seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What, a, what an interesting expression. We're, we're now given a, a place to sit. This week, some of you prayed for me as I had the opportunity to do, again, business travel. I was asked to, to travel to a, a conference center in, uh, in the city of Las Vegas, which provides endless months of sermon fodder. <laughs> I would be okay if I never went there again. But one of the things that, that I observed there is that in all of this conference with these different companies, each of the companies offered a, a different after party after the event. And each company competed to see who would have the more extravagant after party. And who you knew assured whether or not you would be given an invitation. There was a, a bit of competition to, to see who threw the bigger party and who got the most invitations, but all of those invitations reflected the merits of the one who was extending the invitation, which is really important for us to understand as we see what Paul is telling us and that we were seated by the one who invited us, by God the Father. John 14 Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets into the most extravagant celebration of all eternity except through Christ the Son. The, the merits of the one who's invited me, nothing. It's the host that extends that party. I want to invite you to turn to your, uh, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. We have a, an interesting conversation that takes place as a, a mother, the mother of, of James and John comes to Jesus and she's kind of concerned about her, her sons getting an invitation to the Lord's kingdom. Starting at verse 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something and he said to her, what do you want? Sounds kind of curt. What do you want? And she said to him, say to these two sons of mine, say these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? He's of course referring to his, his death. Are these boys of yours gonna be able to, to suffer and partake of? all that I'm going to endure to prepare this place for them? 
And then Jesus says to them, and he said to them, you will drink my cup. They would, in fact, be persecuted for the faith in Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. What an an astounding statement. The invitation is extended by the Father, but our entrance is permitted through the Son. Jesus goes on to say, if it were not so, I would have told you, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he explains that it's ultimately the invitation of a gracious God that would uh, allow us into God's presence for eternity. So the first thing I want us to understand is that this seating that Christ has accomplished for us was at the invitation of the Father. The second thing I I want us to understand as we return to Ephesians chapter two is that there is a, a sense of authority that comes with this statement. If we've been seated with God, we saw back in Ephesians 1 that God the Father was seated at the right hand of God. That position at the right hand of God is one of authority. One of, of positional authority. And before you make the statement here that it doesn't tell us that we were seated at Christ's right hand, we'll arrive at some text today that will help us understand this inference. We are seated with Christ and in Christ, and given an authority. We talked last week about our spiritual adversary, the prince of the power of the air. And now Paul wants us to understand that we've been given spiritual victory over that adversary. Our seating position gives us that assurance. We're seated with him in Christ. The application of where we've been seated also has, has some important things for us to consider as followers of Christ. As I noticed throughout the, the day at the event that I was at, as the, the hours waned on, people became less interested in the activities of the day because they were thinking about the party of the evening. Now, of course, the things that we look for aren't sinful or aren't, aren't of the flesh, but Paul tells us in Colossians chapter three exactly what our mindset ought to be knowing that we have a reservation. Our seat has been secured. Colossians chapter three, verses one through three, Paul writes, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Think about that just for a minute. Christ has gone ahead for us and reserved for us a seat. The fact that that has been set aside for us and prepared for us ought to consume our waking thoughts. What is it that he's prepared for us? What is it he's he's done on our behalf? But the depth of this verse and what he has accomplished doesn't stop there. There's more. Paul says, and he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now the the preposition in here is really important. The words that we use, the prepositions that accompany words, we need to pay careful attention to. I recently commented to a brother of mine, hey, I really appreciate you walking by my side. And he, he resounded and he said to me, he said, well, it's interesting that you say by your side and not on your side, because I am by your side, which is different than on your side. Those prepositions that we use change what we're inferring. Isn't that an interesting thing? But look what Paul says here. You are seated with Christ, and then it says, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen it, but there's something that we need to understand here. There's a reason that Paul is calling this out. Now, there's a a systematic theology term. I don't want to lose you here, but there's a term called federal headship. Some of you may have noticed there was a link for a quick table talk article that explains it far better than I will. But I want us to understand that Paul is calling out throughout his entire letter to the Ephesian church the theme of unity, the theme of togetherness, Unfortunately, 
That togetherness begins with the reality that we are all dead in sin. The word in is taking us to this concept of federal headship. This is uh, the idea that, that one person is representative of the whole group. For us as individuals in the 21st century, this is a little bit hard to grapple with. But yet, we understand it. If I say Russia right now, the first person that comes to your mind, Vladimir Putin. You travel overseas and you identify yourself as an American, the elected head of state, no comments being added here qualitatively, but you're associated with that person who is your leader, like it or not. But Paul wants to call something out, and he started this back in verse 1. We are all under the same federal headship in Adam. In Adam, all die. He's wanting this group of, of believers, Jews and Gentiles, to understand that they have the same federal headship. You see that? You are dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 1. And in verse 4, again, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So now he's making a, a new statement that is a game changer entirely. The federal headship is no longer in Adam. It's in Christ Jesus. Praise God for that. We have to understand this idea of federal headship. One of the excerpts that I'll take from that very article that I mentioned is that understanding this headship requires two, has two immediate ramifications. First of all, we cannot excuse our sin as people commonly do, by appealing to our humanity, I'm only human, is not a justification, it's precisely the problem. Isn't that beautifully said? There is original sin. We have heredity that causes us to be born sinners, to be born dead, to be born separated from God. The second ramification of federal headship is this. It brings to a screeching halt every attempt at trying to rescue ourselves by exerting moral effort. Moral improvement cannot alter the core problem of spiritual heredity and federal reality. A moral child of Adam is still a child of Adam. But praise God, we learned back in, in chapter one that we've been adopted as sons. We've been made joint heirs with Christ. So when Paul makes this statement, you were raised up with him, you were seated with him, and you are in him, he's pointing to a new sense of unity. Sinners, saved by grace, placed in Christ Jesus. So tuck that away. We'll hear more about this federal headship thing as we go. But it, Adam was our representative. But through grace, through faith, because of the mercy and the love with which he loved us, our headship is in Christ Jesus. It's not a national head. The head is over this thing called the church, a mystery made up of Sinners of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Then Paul moves on in verse 7 to say that, that all of this that he's done, this raising us up, this seeking us up with Christ, is so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And again, careful reading is important. When I first came to this passage, I thought it was saying that, that he wanted to show us in the coming ages of all of his riches and all of his kindness. And that's certainly true, right? He's preparing a place for us. He has desired that we would see his grace and goodness. But what Paul is trying to say here actually is that he wants to be displaying in us the immeasurable riches of his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. See, this is the paradox. We are in Christ. He is our federal head. But as we'll see in, in Ephesians coming up, we're also being built up into a building, a living structure in which Christ resides. Do you see that? Us in Christ, Christ in us. Christ in us is intended for the coming ages that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards Jesus. You are on display as a recipient of God's grace. We'll come back to this a little bit more, but just a, a bit of a preview. Verse 10 says, we are his workmanship. The word there is, is like a masterpiece, a work of art, something that is on display. You have been given the gift of salvation by God through Christ so that his glory might be displayed. 
for the praise of his glory. That's, that's the purpose statement and all that God is, is trying to help us understand about the salvation that he's given us. Then moving from verse seven into verse eight, we, uh, we understand that it's his immeasurable riches, the riches of his mercy, the riches of his, of his kindness, the riches of his grace that he wishes to display in us. In verse eight, Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Paul's reminding the church of the same truth that we need to be reminded of here and now. This is not of us. This is nothing that we have earned. We are not a degree better than anybody outside these walls. We were just as dead. But he drew near to us. The expression that, that Paul uses here is really interesting because he says that, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is only the second time so far that we've, we've seen the word faith in this letter to the Ephesians. And so we have to wonder just a little bit how we're supposed to understand this concept of faith. Well, so federal headship gives us a clue. In the book of Ephesians, I looked through and I found nowhere a mention of the man Abraham. But for the people that Paul is writing to, there's certain words in this that would have been key words that would immediately take them to a headship, to an understanding that they had of Abraham. We see this throughout scripture, right? The Jewish people would claim Abraham as their father. They wanted to forget about Adam as their father, right? All that Adam brought them was trouble. So let's go to the promise. Let's go to Abraham. We got Abraham. He's got faith. We are in Abraham. How did Jesus respond to that? He could raise up out of stones, out of these stones, sons for Abraham. Doesn't mean anything. But Paul takes us to that word faith that brings to mind all that was the covenant of promise. Romans chapter five, verses one and two, give us a little bit of an understanding of, of how this faith plays in. How does this faith play out into our salvation? Romans five, one and two. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the glory of God. Faith is the vehicle by which we come to hear of, understand, and believe in the grace that has been extended to us through Jesus Christ. This faith component is described by one of the commentary writers that I read about as, as the, the syringe that allows the medication of grace to be administered to us. Both are needful, but make no mistake about it. It's not the, the faith that saves you, it's the grace. The faith comes through hearing. Let's go on for just a moment to understand a bit more about Father Abraham. Paul says, and by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. not a result of works, that no one would boast. Now, the word that, that Paul uses right here, again, takes us back to Abraham. The word boast, it sounds like something that we're, we're really proud of, right? For Spanish speakers, the word is that no one would glory in. Boasting, being proud of, glorying in, and also the word boast has to do with confidence. What is it that our confidence is in? But when Paul uses this word, it's a word that he uses elsewhere as he, as he writes in scripture. If you would, back to Romans chapter four, beginning at, at verse one, Paul goes in to address the Roman church and talk to them about the, the faith, the saving faith of Abraham. What then shall we say, this is verse one, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Look at verse four and five carefully. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as a due. 
And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see that with, with clarity? Abraham was not justified by his works. He was justified by the, the faith that he had. Because of his faith, it was credited to him as righteousness. Verses four and five are, are tough for our, our minds to understand. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as a due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This flies in the face of everything we as human believe, humans believe. We believe that, that we need to, to work and earn something. The notion to most of us, as we understand scripture, is that from uh, providing for our, our physical means, we're required to work. We see in Ecclesiastes, toil under the sun. We see Paul saying, I wasn't a burden on any of you, I work with my own hands. The notion of welfare ought to be just a bit of an offense to us. We were built to work. We were built to, to earn our keep. But what Paul says here is that we are completely dependent on a divine welfare system, on a system in which we cannot earn anything. Paul says with clarity, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. So if we think in some way we have worked for our salvation, we've misunderstood. When you work for something, that's not a gift. It's a pay. But throughout this passage, Paul reminds us it's through faith, through grace, and been gifted to us. Verse 16 of Romans chapter 4, we'll stay on that same chapter. Paul reiterates, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. You see the relationship between the faith and the grace there? It says, this is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. There's the federal headship thing again, right? There's the, the Jewish people thinking that they have Abraham as their father, and, and that's the guarantee of the promise. But the guarantee of the promise is the faith itself. Abraham faith, had faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And now because of that, Paul says, listen, the promise that rests on grace is not only to the adherent of the law. Remember, we talked about the trespassers, those who had the law but violated it, versus those who sinned, who didn't have the law but violated it. Everyone is in the same boat. There's unity in the fact that they were all in the same predicament. But now through Christ, the promise of grace has been made available to all. Not only to the adherent of law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That faith is necessary for us to in turn share. Faith comes through hearing. We'll come back to Romans 10 in a little bit. Faith comes from hearing, right? And hearing through the word of God. Returning to Ephesians chapter two, verse nine, Paul says, and this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. There is no room for thinking that any of this is from us. The last verse of Romans chapter four, you don't have to turn there, but I want to read it to you, says this. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up from, for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now we know this really well, church. The process of, of Christ saving us is, is threefold. The first thing is his justification of our sins. He legally took all those things that were against us and nailed it to the cross. He, he canceled what, was, what we would have otherwise owed and justified us. Secondarily, we know that as he's justified us, then he set us apart and he has sanctified us. He is in the process of molding us and shaping us to be more like his son Jesus so that we would reflect his glory. And ultimately, his his glorification of us 
is entirely his work as well. We need to remember that that justification was only possible through Christ. But sometimes, you know what? We think, okay, we're justified. And, and now the rest is up to me. There's actually entire groups of, of churches that teach that, that God sort of does that work in us, winds us up, and sets us on our own to do the process of sanctification. We think that the sanctification part is up to us. But Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, he says to the church there, he says, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Sometimes we, we think that we've been justified by Christ, faith in Christ, and he's given us some sort of a spiritual DIY kit where we can now go and work out our own sanctification. I think by this point, anecdotally, we ought to know that we can't and wouldn't pick a plan for sanctification like God does for us. Would we all pick the situations in our life that God is currently using to sanctify us? Would we maybe pick some of the, the people or the, the places in our life that, that sanctify us the way that, that we're being sanctified? This is of him as well. Just as he saved us and our salvation is from him alone, the same is true of our sanctification. Don't forget that, church. Trust in him as he continues to work out your sanctification. If you feel like you've made a step, two, or, a step or two forward in your sanctification, make sure you're thanking God for that because he did it. During Sunday school time this morning, we looked at King Hezekiah who prayed and asked God for deliverance. God saved him from a particular situation. And as soon as he got saved from that particular situation, he told all the, the armies around him, look what I've accomplished. And that led to his demise. Be careful that you acknowledge that what Christ is doing in you and through you is just that, him doing it in and through you. And this, not of yourselves that we would boast. Careful. As we, we understand that this salvation is fully of Christ, we also understand that, that our ultimate glorification is coming from him. That invitation to spend eternity with the Father, extended through the Son, is not based on our merits. It's based solely on the merits of Christ. As we look at verse 10, which is our response to understanding that all of this is from Christ, there's now a purpose statement. Paul says, for we are his workmanship. Again, a masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Just as our salvation is preordained, so is the work of sanctification that he wants to do in us. He wants to, to show himself working in us so that we would be distinguished from the world around us. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people were, were set apart. He would work on their behalf for the glory of his name. And he does the same thing for us, church. He has set us apart and called us, not just so that we have an assurance that we have a seat reserved for us, but rather that the world around us would understand not us, but Christ in us, and us in Christ. So what are some of these, these good works that he set us apart for? Well, let's go back to Titus chapter 2 that uh, Mark read for us this morning. A beautiful passage that helps us understand that we have been prepared to be God's trophies on display of what he has done for us. In verse 2, Starting at verse 7, Paul writes and says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that any opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. One of the good works that he has set us apart for is to walk in integrity, to walk in dignity, and to model good works. Why? so that an unbelieving world can't discredit the faith that we have in Christ. That's one aspect of good works. He also says in verse 10 of Titus chapter 2, 
so that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Isn't that beautiful? The, the works that we have ought to show off the amazing grace of God the Father. If we've been given a gift, let's tell people what God has done for us, that we would adorn that grace that he's shown us. And in the, the meat of the passage that we looked at there this morning, it, it says that, that God appeared bringing salvation for all people. And in verse 14, it says, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God desires to have this called out population. He calls it the church. Set apart so that we would be zealous to do good works and called by his name. Called by the name of Jesus. Called as the church of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 13 gives us another aspect of what are some of the works that God has called us to. So God has called us to a, a conduct that's beyond, that is above reproach. But also he's called us to good works conforming with his will. Hebrews 13 verses 20 and 21. This is the, the benediction at the close of this collection of sermons. It says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of his eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see that? The good work that we've been called to do is to live and act according to his will, that you may do his will. Do we pray that? God, help me to know what your will is. Sometimes he makes his will completely and abundantly clear to us, but obeying it is yet another step, right? But that's what he's prepared us in advance to do, to live out and carry out his will. Matthew chapter 25, if you turn with me there, it won't fit on the slide, it's a, a bit of a passage like to read through it together. And this describes for us the works that God has prepared for us, the works of mercy. For those who are, are deacons in our midst who are re, we're re, reviewing some of what the Bible establishes for, for deacons in the church, ministries of mercy. Those are some of the works that, that he's called us to. But pay careful attention to what the Lord Jesus tells us in this passage about these works that we've been called to. This is starting at verse 31. Jesus says, When the Son of Man, referring to himself, comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep where? On his right. And the goats? On his left, and then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Does that sound a little like Ephesians to you? Does that sound a little familiar? So there's, there's the son of man, the king of glory, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he comes and he says to those who are on his right, the sheep, those that he has called, those that he has predestined, those that he has elect, those that he has saved. And he says, come, you who are blessed or spoken well of by my father. You who are invited guests of my father, come on, come on in. This has all been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he goes on and makes a, a statement that we have to be careful to understand. This is a, a great text that, that uh, is preached in many a, a church that teach us that our, our salvation was started by Jesus and the rest was the DIY sanctification? Pay, pay careful attention here. What Jesus is describing is now works, characteristics of those who are the elect, those who are righteous because of their faith in Christ. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was, stranger. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous, notice that, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick 
or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, those are righteous acts. Those are works of mercy that he prepared for us, caring for the stranger, caring for the sick, visiting those who are in prison, those who are thirsty, those who have needs. That's the, that's the fruit, the, the righteous works that show that we're in Christ. Jesus goes on to speak of those at his left. He says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will all answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Distinction. The sheep, those on his right, are the ones invited by God the Father. Righteousness is credited to them because of their faith, just as it was to Abraham. They were saved by, their, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The unrighteous cast aside, still under the wrath of God. The works here are simply an evidence of their position with God. That's why we need to understand and we continue to preach in, in this body of believers that without that relationship with the Father made possible through Jesus Christ, eternal separation from God. Just like Paul delivers us the bad news that we were dead in sins, if we haven't come to understand this, if we don't embrace this, if we don't recognize that it's only from Christ, there's eternal damnation. There's eternal separation from God. Jesus said, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Who's righteous? Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. I'd like you to turn also to um, a commentary writer, uh, James. James provides some commentary on what Jesus said. If you would go to James chapter two, and this is a, an encouragement to us as believers to understand that because we are righteous, because we are those sheep who have been seated at the right hand of our Savior, the presence of these works for which we have been prepared is necessary. James says, starting at verse 14 of chapter two, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith and does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in good food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you, that my, I will show you my faith from my works. Don't miss this, church. Don't miss the importance of this. If we understand the gift that we have been given, if we understand that it is God's unmerited favor, that drives us to respond. That drives us to respond with, with living out our faith in obedience. If you would, please turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 provides us with a beautiful explanation of, of how faith operates to bring about the salvation of the saints. And it also gives us an important work that we've been called to as a church, as a body. I'm gonna begin with, with verse 10. Sorry, verse, uh, verse eight of chapter 10. Paul writes, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Isn't that amazing? 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches. You see that? There's some Ephesian language. His riches, yet again. Bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then in verse 14, we start to see some of those works that we are called to as recipients of God's grace. Paul asks the rhetorical question, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You see those those interrogatives there that Paul has, those rhetorical questions? He's calling out and bringing to mind the words of the Great Commission. Go therefore into all nations, preaching, baptizing, making disciples. That's what the the good works are that the church is called to live out. As I see it there, it says, how, how will they hear unless somebody tells them? Church, we have to tell others of the gift that we have received in Jesus Christ. I listened to a, uh, a Johnny Mack sermon, and uh, he said that there's evangelists or preachers that will often say, preach with your life and sometimes use words. And John MacArthur says, please, use words. <laughs> use words. Preach with your life, yes, but preach with words. Tell others what Jesus has done for you. I'm enthralled with the, the simple C.S. Lewis quote that we are nothing more than beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. Is that not the truth of it? This salvation is not of us that we should boast, but please tell others from where this this salvation is derived. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, by that grace we've been saved. Tell others about it. The mandate goes on and, and Paul says, and how can they preach unless they're sent? This message isn't for us to, to, to sit around powwow about and thank God for. It, it, it's to share. It's to carry out a mission of discipleship that Christ set in motion with his church. The Great Commission. Go! Train people up. Train your young people up. Train up leaders. Train up those who are, who are capable of handling God's word. And send them out. Send them out. If it's not ascending church, we need to check our understanding for, of that which God has prepared us for. How will they preach unless they're sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who have heard the good news? I want to take you to Revelation chapter 2. Our last two passages for this morning are in the same amazing book. In Revelation chapter 2, Christ addresses the churches. He, said, he talks about lampstands and stars and angels. This lampstand is a church. And he writes specifically to the church that's at Ephesus, tying into all that we're studying. Listen to what he says. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil and have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them, found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. If we stop there, that's an encouraging message that Christ has for his church at Ephesus. But we can't stop there. Verse four says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Don't miss the severity of that statement. I will remove your lampstand. I will take you from being a local congregation of believers. Repent and do the works you did at first. Church, this call to display the works that he's prepared us for are a right response to the grace that he has freely given us. Ultimately, our justification 
is from Christ alone. Our sanctification is through Christ alone. And our glorification in the same sense will be through Christ alone. I want to end in Revelation chapter 19. This brings together the fact that we have been guaranteed a seat. That seat is ruling and reigning with Christ Jesus and seated at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then I heard, verse 6, what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God reigns. The, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Do you see that? What we're going to be doing for all of eternity is let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the praise of his glorious grace. The fine linen which, which he hath clothed us are the righteous deeds that he has permitted us to do eternally for his glory. But that work of worshiping him is a response to the salvation that he has given us, church. May he be glorified in and through our lives as we live out before a watching world, an unbelieving world, what he has graciously given us. We are recipients of that gift. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the reminder that this salvation is not from us that we would boast. This is a gift through, through faith, because of your grace, because of your mercy, shown to us through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord God, that it was your shed blood that assures that we have a, a seat at your table. God, as the, the song line resounds through my mind, we were once your enemies. We were dead in sin. But you have graciously extended to us an invitation to sit at your table. That place has been reserved for us even now and we long to be in your presence for all of eternity. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.